You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, my name's Rebecca Rees. I'm a partner and head of public procurement at Trowers and Hamlins, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Ian McGill of Spend Network. And today we're going to be talking about public procurement, data and artificial intelligence. Before we get into the detail, Ian, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Spend Network? So my name's Ian McGill. I run Spend Network and we have a fairly boldly stated claim, which is that we gather data from on procurement from all around the world every day and we bring it together in a common standard to make it analyzable and to really try and understand what governments are doing with their procurement around the world. Thank you, Ian. So as this podcast is recorded in November 2023, we have just had the Procurement Act 2023 published, having received royal assent. Um, And that has promised to transform public procurement in the UK. And so I thought that this was a perfect time to speak to Ian and um, particularly comment on the transparency reforms under the Procurement Act and also then starting to look forward as to what role artificial intelligence might play in the procurement sphere. So, Ian, we've chatted before about this, but let's hear your views on the transparency reforms under the Procurement Act 2023? Well, I think I would start from a place of trying to probably wanting to reiterate that transparency has been a thing for a while. And actually the Act has really possibly hardened up a couple of things, made it more explicit which documents you're going to be publishing. But if you look at the previous procurement transparency regime, if you will, you know, we were required to publish details on our contracts and our contract awards or our transparency notices that stipulated that uh, departments and other public bodies making significant uh, commitments should publish pipeline notices. We should also have an awareness of uh, go to market. And so there was a, a pretty clear regime around spending and transparency uh, before. And really what this has done is taken that regime and brought it into line with the new act. So I I don't think that there's a huge amount of additional um, work that's going to be involved unless unless you run a system that publishes these notices. Um, However, on the other hand, I, I can see why people are thinking, oh, gosh, you know, this is real now, because quite often they weren't doing what they were supposed to do under the previous act, if I'm honest. Um, I think that's probably right in in many cases. I think a lot of our clients are commenting that there are many more notices coming through under the Procurement Act in the sense that it is more than just a, a tender notice and a contract award notice now. There are other mandatory uh, notices coming through and they are concerned about the administrative burden of that, particularly in light of 
uh, Boris Johnson's kind of promise that these reforms, once kicked off and achieved, would represent a bonfire of, of red tape and administrative burden. But I take the point that the content of the notices should already be being generated and in a lot of circumstances should already be transparently published or or disclosed as well. Um, In terms of the types of information to be published, talk to me about what Spend Network does in terms of uh, getting to grips with data and the type of um, information you are interested in seeing that comes through already under the current procurement regime, but may also be an addition uh, to what we see either through uh, you know, not complying with the regs as they are or, or being uh, increased under the new regime. So we gather data from all over the world. So I think the if I talk in broad abstract terms, we collect four types of notice broadly. One is that notice about early market engagement. Uh, the second is the announcement of going to tender. The, the third is the contract award notice. And then um, fourth might be spending data or notices around performance under contract. Pretty much everything we gather fits into those four buckets somehow. Um, the new regime also aligns quite closely with that, that we're going to fit into those those common areas. Um, what we're really interested in is trying to take that journey, trying to understand that journey of, I have identified a need or a public institution has identified a need, how they go to market, who they award to, and then what happens under the duration of that contract it might be as simple as just knowing that the contract is going to come to an end so we don't get anything other than the contract award notice but it's trying to take that journey from we've gone to market through to finishing the award what we then do is we try and bring together an analysis that makes it clear about what what looks like performance are we are we doing something good or are we doing something bad but also we augment the data. So we might add carbon analysis. So to understand how much carbon will be emitted through the duration of the contract, for example, or whether or not there is a gender pay gap in the awardee. So the the supplier providing um, that contract has a good gender pay gap or a poor gender pay gap compared to the average. So it's obvious that currently you deal with a lot of data that is coming through the procurement life cycle. Um, In terms of the sufficiency of data you get, there must be doubts over sufficiency, completeness, comprehensiveness, hygiene of the data that you obviously have got to grips with or, or deal with on a daily basis. How do you think the reforms are designed to help that collection of data or the display of data? So I think this falls into a couple of key areas, probably three areas where there can be problems with publication. One is we've got the data, but we've chosen for whatever reason or forgotten to make it available. Um, And you can see that 
that that's going to come up in the COVID inquiry, for example, where you know you've got the information, but for whatever reason, it's not been made public. The second is where um, you are actually kind of working with a supplier, a provider of a tender tender software, um, and through using that tool, you're being an honest broker, but they are not providing all of the information that might be provided into the public sphere. And then the third is this kind of um, area where what's happening is that you're trying to provide the information, but you don't actually know. So you might not know when a contract is exactly going to finish, or you might not know the entire value of a contract. And so you fudge it a little bit and, you know, you do your best and then you forget about it and you don't update the contract or those kind of things. So broadly, we think that the last example is normal. We kind of, we can live with that. We know you're trying your best and there should be more ways for government publishers to be able to say, we're not sure about this. Can I put an asterisk beside it? And, the regimes don't allow for that, which is a bit of a problem. Um, or can I come back to it? You know, the the other two issues we kind of we get a bit grumpy about in a in a nice way. We realise that publishing is hard, but you know, people really can't sit on this data and just say, oh, you know, my lawyer was looking at it for sixteen months. Yeah. <laughs> you know you're going to publish this stuff you should write up your contracts and and as part of your procurement process be ready to know what you are going to redact and be ready to publish in 30 days so those are really interesting kind of deficiencies really if you want to call them those in the, in the current system i mean it seems to me that government have suggested a number of ways that the gathering or the disclosure or the publication of data can be made easier for the client or contracting authority. Um, the two that I'm thinking about is the central digital platform and then the structuring of the publication and the transparency regime around the open contracting data standard. So if we look at the central digital platform first, we know that there's delays around a central government IT program who knew um, that it will have limited functionality when we go live on the procurement reforms in October 2024 but but when it's up to full strength and vigor do you think it will help contracting authorities particularly around uh, your third issue of we've got it we're just not great at giving it to you look there's a many a slip Twix cup and lip, but I like to think that if if we have something, the real problem is that if you follow the the model that contracts find followed, which was to provide a product where someone could publish a notice, and you can log in and you can put up your notice, and that broadly works, and you can fill out all of the data. Um, that was fine, but what we found was that the suppliers of e-tendering services are the great are the bulk of the source of this information and you know despite whatever efforts have been put into contracts finders they they still don't marry up to the schema in contracts finder so a lot of them don't 
provide an option for a publisher to indicate whether a uh, contract is compliant is suitable for VCSEs or SMEs, for example. So that data is just missing. It doesn't get into the system. And I think that however good the central digital system is or isn't, it's those organizations, these e-senders as they're called, or the, the software providers, if they, if they don't actually comply with the data standard, we're going to get rubbish data, right? And, and so I think there is a question for the cabinet office, one that I have posed to them, which is what are you going to demand of these organizations, of these companies, and by when? And what is the, you know, what what are we going to expect of people who are already in contract? If I've got a 10-year contract with my e-tendering provider, what's going to happen to that contract? That's a question that we need to ask. But also, what is, if someone says they're compliant with the new regime come October 20, 2024, are they actually compliant? What does that mean? And will they fill in all of the opportunities? I will say very quickly on the open contracting data standard, we are big fans. We are the largest publisher of OCDS compliant data in the world. And we think it is a fundamentally good way to transfer this data between organizations. It's a really valuable standard and it's a good thing. And we are you know, delighted that the cabinet office have said that they continue to support it. So I'm going to go back to the platform in a minute, but seeing as you've um, brought up the um, open contracting data standard, which I might abbreviate to OCDS, so uh, listeners, please forgive me. Um, can you just give a brief description as to what it is and what purpose it serves? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I referred to it as OCDS, so open contracting data standard OCDS. Apologies for using it an acronym but effectively what it is is it's like a um spreadsheet template there are features in every tender that we would want to see for example a tender notice you know a title a description a deadline date and it's about making sure that the right information is in the right place so that all of the tenders can be determined uh, can be put into a database ready to be analyzed um, uh, in the same way so uh that it, it's a it's really just a format thanks Ian um and a universal one at that I suppose which which helps correct I mean just going back to the comments you made on the central digital platform I think there were two interesting points there for me as a lawyer one transition requirements now normally when um procurement legislation is updated um, whichever contract has been let under the old regime, the old regime rules apply until that contract expires or is terminated or reprocured or whatever. Um, a few exceptions. Um, it's really interesting, isn't it, that the transparency agenda may well not apply to existing contracts, particularly around data, maybe um, in the new format for contract life cycle issues I wouldn't expect that we would have to publish a contract expiry notice 
which is one of the new notices under regime so so that mm. kind of hampers i suppose the the implementation of the new kind of transparency aspirations well it it may or may not i think i think the issue is there's a decision that has to be made at some point by the cabinet office which which will effectively come to this which is you know you have this long or by this period you have to comply with the notices and you know if i was in their shoes i would probably say i cannot take account of all of the available contracts that are running in the uk public sector and so we're just going to set a deadline and by that time it doesn't matter if they've already paid for a non-compliant bit of software and it's up to them to find a solution to this and to make sure that they are publishing um that would I guess at some level favor the providers of the software solutions that upload the data, but also if you've got a good version of this website of the central data repository, I mean, people will be able to do it through that anyway, I would have thought if it's like Contracts Finder. So, you know, and maybe there's an argument for creating an open source version. That's something I would love to see happen. Yes. And and I suppose part of your answer touches on the policy certainly of, of central government around the transparency agenda. I mean, I've often mused that had they not lost the um, PPE transparency cases uh, uh, around uh, contract award notices, then maybe we wouldn't be in the transparency uh, position um, or have as many notices as, as we do currently under the reformed regime. But that's just musing. But in terms of policy uh, being pursued through the transparency agenda and picking up on what you said about notices needing to indicate whether they are appropriate for SMEs and VCSEs, etc. Um, it seems to me that government probably are missing a trick, aren't they? If they don't require contracting authorities to upload that type of information because the information we've seen thus far on the draft regulations has been fairly pedestrian and may I say fairly aligned with what we already are required to do um, under the European derived legislation so if we truly were transforming public procurement it could be suggested that we should have additional information to provide in order to, you know, fact check against the achievement of policy objectives. So I'm with you on that one. And, and, and just to come in there very quickly, the other thing is that this is obviously under secondary legislation. So the one of the problems we have is that a new minister for for, for procurement can effectively come in and go well now we require this additional data or now we're going to not have this data so it, it does feel like the foundation is good but I wonder about how precise or how much information we're really going to get about what needs to be collected and when you know I'm not sure. It's an interesting point I mean the new regime is designed to be flexible but as with other areas of flexibility and and the procurement law effectively being encapsulated in secondary legislation and guidance now what we call soft law is that you know it mm -hmm. can change 
at the the whim or or otherwise of of a minister. I like the idea of a procurement minister. Uh, I'm not well, yes, sorry. I'm, uh, <laughs> someone we can we can talk to again. What are you doing? But no, I, someone who is responsible for procurement, a minister responsible for procurement, would yeah, sits just to the right of the Ministry of Magic. Um, so I, I mean, I, I get the value of data for um, people like you, people um, bidding to the public sector for stakeholders, taxpayers to sort of keep contracting authorities' uh, uh, feet to the flames, as it were. But this is quite a robust and an onerous agenda. What would you say to a contracting authority that's kind of feeling a bit weary about this whole agenda? Are the benefits of transparent disclosure of their data? To, to them what's the benefits to them of doing all of this um Rebecca that's a, a a really interesting question and I think that I would say that it, it it's something that has been left out of the transparency agenda the benefit to um uh, to, to publishers of having good data I think is is probably quite obvious in some ways in that they get to know about what is happening in their own institutions, where all their contracts are, their pipeline of upcoming tenders, why contracts are getting cancelled. But also, if you look at it in the collective, you might start to see an ability, for example, to understand how much more on average over and above a contracted amount we end up paying to a given supplier so if we all go out and commission uh, a, a piece of work worth a million pounds from supplier x and the average payment to them over the duration of the contract is 1.2 million pounds we can look at them and say well look whatever their pricing says at the outset we can add 20 percent those kind of things really start to have merit when we get large amounts of data and that's the sort of thing that I would want to see. Another example is better data allows you to, if you're a local authority, I can identify other companies, companies in my local authority region that are being traded with by, say, the Scottish government or the um, or parts of Whitehall that I didn't know about. Good um, recruitment consultants or whatever it is that I might consider using as a local um, authority and so I think that kind of information is, is is beneficial but I do agree that we have had this sense that it has all been one-sided you push data out and people like me come along and scrape it up and go well thanks very much and off we pop without much benefit to the publisher I think uh, probably a, a, another benefit other than doing business with good companies that are active in your area, analysing spend and to ensure a bit of performance, is that the whole discipline of publishing data means you have a better idea and ownership of, of your own data um, in a kind of reflective way. Um, so what I'm hearing from you is that this agenda is good. It's going to promote, yes, good behaviours, should. Um, achieve better results for the public 
purse generally. And one of the biggest risks to the transparency agenda and the benefits it could bring is either insufficient or um, poor data or incorrect data. Even. I think so. It's a feedback loop of its own. If you imagine that when, where we are now is we, we're not getting very good data. In a lot of places, there are gaps. We're not getting values for contracts. We're not getting end dates, those kind of things. Categorization is um, often poor. And what that means is that when you try and use the data, you can't. That's why we're filling so many of the gaps ourselves to try and improve the quality of the data so that it can be analyzed. And when you start to analyze the data, it becomes more useful. So then the argument for publishing better data becomes more apparent. And the more the better data you publish, the more you can analyze and the more you can do with it. So it, it, there is a, an opportunity for a positively reinforced feedback loop that makes procurement better the more you publish better data. No, that's great. Well, look, let's leave transparency behind us and look to the future. Um, November 2023, we've just had the Bletchley Park Summit on Artificial Intelligence. Um, bizarrely, the reforms promising to transform public procurement is completely silent on artificial intelligence. But I think that's probably because we are only just seeing its use in the procurement realm. Um, and so what I wanted to talk about was sort of your thoughts on artificial intelligence and particularly in tenders. I think a lot of clients are fearful that they are going to get bids back from robots rather than bidders. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Um, well, firstly, I would say I'm not surprised that artificial intelligence isn't in the procurement white paper or wasn't in the legislation and wasn't in the white paper. I mean, really, ChatGPT changed everything you know, 18 months ago, and, and, and we, we're all still reeling from that. I, th I think that also a lot of, if, if you talk to people who were working on advanced AI programs, they were surprised by ChatGPT. And the capabilities there, so I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to cast any aspersions uh, uh, to the government in uh, for this area because it really wasn't a thing when we started on the journey of the new legislation, or it wasn't seen as a relevant aspect. Um, what what I would say is that if if you are a bidder who isn't using AI tools to help decide how you're going to answer questions and write some of that copy, you soon will be, because the, the benefits to the bidders are, are, are so great. Um, if you think about just the quality of writing and not getting, not putting in spelling mistakes, you know, there's an immediate uplift. And I think it is a challenge for buyers about how they respond to this, because it does mean a lot potentially as it becomes cheaper to bid or easier to bid you are going to see more bids certainly yes and so for clients that have a slightly sinister view of ai um what what do we think they should do in order to limit its impact or effect on 
bidding results? Well, I, I think that the temptation, the immediate temptation is to say, well, I'm going to ban AI bids. But of course, these, you know, the question of whether or not something was produced by AI is probably irrelevant. Because if, if I get ChatGPT to draft a response to, to a bid and then I amend it, did that, did that come from AI or did it come from me? Is, is the problem that I wrote a bid with the help of a, some other tool when previously I might have used a bid writer, um, but now I'm doing it this way. Is that the problem or is the problem the fact that I now have to one, respond to 60 bids rather than six? And I think we can all agree the problem is the 60 bid thing. So generally, I think there are a couple of things that uh, buyers can do. One is to stop asking for 500 word responses. You know, it's the cost of producing text is zero, as it almost certainly is now. Don't ask suppliers to produce a lot of text. Ask for 100 word answers, 150 word answers. Ask for those small bits of text that they have to work. They still have to work through. But if you ask for long, long responses, you, you really are causing a work for yourself. So I would certainly reduce the amount of text that I receive. And I would look to make sure that um, the criteria for bidding is quite precise so that you can't, you have to demonstrate a certain level of um, capability or reasonable experience before you can bid. Now, that might be bad for SMEs, but you have to balance that equation. I mean, I, I quite like that in terms of if you're trying to minimise the impact of AI on bid responses, go for short, precise, bespoke you know, questions and answers. So, you know, you once said to me that often word counts seem to be a, a, a kind of proxy for effort that if you're prepared to give me 10 questions of 500 or a thousand words each then you obviously are really committed to the contract and want to win it um and so if we get past that i suppose in terms of really transforming procurement practice clients need to rethink well you know is ai or the use of it in compilation of of bid responses any better or worse than paying lots of money to a professional bid writer to help us fill the gap that we've got in being able to construct a cogent and, and attractive bid. Um, yeah. But then what you're saying about bespoke specialist shorter answers I think should be a benefit to SMEs because they don't necessarily have time the overhead the the capacity to to, to answer 10 lots of you know 1,000 word questions so or, or, or provide 1,000 word answers to those questions so it could be that the use of AI in some sort of judicious way actually is the thing regardless of legislative reform that enables SMEs to access the public person in a cheaper way. I think you're right. And I, I think that, I mean, we've all 
probably seen bid responses where the quality of the English has been poor, but the intent is honest. And can we hand on heart say, well, can we award that bid to that person because their ability to write cogently is, is, isn't that good? But actually, if it's a contract for fitting kitchens, what is their ability to write cogent English got to do with their ability to write to to fit kitchens? So you might you might find that by raising, you know, AI raises all the boats and it allows um, some bidders to to put a much better foot forward uh, and that might create more competition. So I think there are issues for buyers to address, but one of them shouldn't be I want to stop any AI generated content coming into my organization because a that's unrealistic and and b you might actually be missing out and for clients seeking to use ai to evaluate bids well um i think this is a much more difficult space the the upside for uh, a buyer to using ai i think is very limited or much more limited than than suppliers in the tender process. I think there are other spaces where it does become valid. The real problem is that by the work of setting out a tender, um, publishing it, uh, evaluating the bids that come in, and selecting a, a winning bidder, and then and then um, awarding the contract. Actually, the real work is in driving consensus within your organisation about how much money you've got, what the, the shape of the contract will look like, what the specification is, how you're going to measure success. You've got to agree all of that. And then you've got to evaluate the bids and agree why someone is a winner and why this bid is better than the other. And then you've got to agree your contract. And in each of those cases, AI doesn't really help. If I'm if if what I'm looking for is consensus and I'm going to AI, I, I can't, I'm not going to drive consensus through that. So I think the, there is a limitation where it possibly can be useful is in creating, identifying which bits of um, uh, tender specifications seem to be associated with good outcomes uh, and, and using those. So you might, for example, work out that, that a, a, a specification that has unlimited liability puts off so many good suppliers that you're getting um you you end up with a bad contract so you could say well actually we're better off limiting our liability because we're going to get better results um so in future with enough data ai could help with that i don't think it can help with evaluation in in the public sector simply because uh you have to explain exactly you have to have that audit trail of your decision if you hand that over to an AI and say, right, I, I believe the AI is right. If you end up in, uh, in court going, explain your decision, you just can only point to the black box. And I don't think you're, you're the lawyer, here, but I, I don't think that's going to work. Absolutely. I think uh, there would be uh, some interesting discussions uh, on that in terms of exercising discretion and, and <laughs> big criteria. And, just to 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 ask a probably a final question, I guess there is um, 
much overlap in your sphere to come around um, how AI links with all of this transparent disclosure of data to the benefit of the public purse, I guess. Well, I think I gave, I gave an example just now about that, that, that limit, unlimited liability. Right now, if you're letting a tender, there is absolutely no detail whatsoever on the likely impact of including unlimited liability or limiting liability on a, on a tender uh, or a contract. Um, and we don't know if it puts off SMEs. We don't know if it delivers a good or bad outcome. And, and actually, the promise of AI is that we can start to bring together predictive analysis where we can say, well, look, these are, with good data from transparency, we can say these are the tenders that went really well. They, they, they awarded quickly, they got a good contract, and the contract, we didn't have overspend, we had delivery on time. Brilliant. All of those things happen. And we can trace that back and go, what was common about the tenders, the specifications that achieved that end versus the specifications that went over budget, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and, and you know, the bad news is that we might decide that actually all IT projects in government go are going to be expensive, but we might also decide that actually we've got a really good way of doing it if we use this approach. And I think that that evidence has been lacking. So the the promise for both buyers and suppliers is really, um, I think, for good data to be used effectively to drive efficient markets, I think it's it's a really exciting time. I would add, the final thing is, if you look at almost every other industry, whether it's financial services, sport, tourism, uh, marketing, they are getting used to the idea of having really good data to shape the decisions that they make and creating these feedback loops that allow them to make better decisions. Really, government and, and procurement is one of those areas where I think we've lagged behind. And, and the promise of AI, I think, will bring us much closer to a future where we can understand what is likely to happen before we do it. No, that's great. So predictive decision-making loops. And, and it sounds to me like you were imagining a, a, a league table for clients and their good procurement practices as well. So no, I feel that we've... Or buyers, or <laughs> suppliers, rather. Suppliers. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and I think actually the, the, the likelihood of creating league tables for suppliers is that much greater than it is for, for, for buyers, if I'm honest. Both needed. <laughs> um, I feel, Ian, that we've only really skimmed the surface of, of transparency and, and AI today in, in the procurement context. But So I feel another podcast coming on. But thank you so much for guiding us through your understanding of, of, of both transparency and the AI in the procurement space today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers, or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.